Welcome again to episode number 57 of High Times Presents Free Weed from Danny Danko. Thanks, as always, to DJ Jacques and the reggae artist Win Strong for that wonderful song. And here we are, episode 57. Uh, very excited about this one. We've got an interview uh, with a historical figure, Mr. Bill Ayers. And uh, we're going to talk growing. We're going to talk about outdoor growing and drought conditions. Very topical, very now, very of the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the expression, Mike? We're we're living in the now, Dango. This yeah. podcast is in the now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we're excited about that. We got a strain of the fortnight. We got grow questions answered. Um, so yeah, episode number fifty-seven. Let, let's uh, let's take her for a ride. Hey, all right. Episode number fifty-seven. Heinz fifty-seven. Heinz 57, welcome to episode 57 of Free Weed. This is Mike Hughes, and that over there is Danny Danko. Yes, it is. And uh, yeah, we've got quite a show for the people. We do, we do. This is exciting. We, t- we talked to, uh, w- to Bill Ayers, yeah. and uh, many of our listeners, uh, of course, know that name, but some of our younger listeners may not. Um, Dan, you want to just give a very brief background on Bill? Yeah, basically, he <laughs> was a... Uh, anti-war protester who turned radical in the 60s and started the weather underground with some cohorts and uh they ended up uh doing some some bombings that uh didn't end up hurting people but were phoned in and um they felt that that was their way of protesting the war uh since then uh he ended up not uh not being charged for those crimes because the government overreached uh, in their prosecutions and in their investigations and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, long story short, he became a professor uh, at the University of Chicago and uh, many, many years later uh, became the subject of the 2008 campaign where uh, Sarah Palin and earlier than that, actually, uh, Hillary Clinton brought up Obama's ties to uh, terrorists, domestic terrorists. So uh, we talked to him a little bit about uh, his life and protesting and and all of that and Obama as well and marijuana laws and how that relates. Um, and it was a pretty interesting conversation. So we hope you enjoy that, uh, whatever political spectrum you may be on. So uh, that was the discussion. <laughs> yeah. So we're very excited to have that Bill Ayers interview. So stay tuned for that. And uh, But before we get to that, this was an interesting news story. I don't know if you heard this. But Inside Edition did this really sensationalized, kind of hilarious report where they used, like, hidden cameras in this smoke shack at yeah. the Breckenridge uh, Ski Resort. <laughs> oh, man. Where they, they caught, imagine this, snowboarders smoking weed while yeah. snowboarding. And anyway, because of that report, the officials destroyed 
the uh, the smoke shack, uh, Leo's smoke shack. So now uh, you should check out this Facebook page. There's the Leo's Rebuild Project. <laughs> Already has three thousand likes since that structure was destroyed on February twenty February twenty second. So give them a little love. And, yeah. yeah, they should get their their shack back. What is wrong with snowboarders getting high? No, and here's the thing about that too is that these places are special places. They're um, off to the side. If you're not a smoker. Uh, you're not going to get smoke in your face. It's not going to be on the gondola when you get on the gondola. It's it's a it's actually a discreet way for people who enjoy smoking to go off to the side, enjoy it amongst themselves, and then come back to the mountains. So, I mean, I think it serves a tremendous purpose. I've been to smoke shacks myself uh, all over, um, and they're great. They're fun, and, and and they vary in you know comfort level, and they vary. This one apparently was like pretty comfortable couple yeah, it was like floors a, and yeah two-story building yeah and that's amazing and that people went out there and built that and that for them to destroy that because of an inside edition report it really i don't know it's 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 annoying it's really obnoxious but the truth is there's smoke shacks all over every mountain pretty much that i know of kind of has a spot where you can go and that's great and that's wonderful and i think even people who don't smoke on the mountain would concede that that's better than you know, blowing up the spot and, you know, literally because they used <laughs> explosives to destroy the building. So oh. they literally blew up the spot. That's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sucks. And, and, you know, it sucks for everyone who enjoyed that place. It sucks that Inside Edition would, you would do that and that they would have to go and destroy it. And, you know, hopefully that's not the fate of the many other smoke shacks that are out there. And that's, you know, the, the parting message is that there are still lots of places for us to do that. And the other thing is don't let, you know, if you're in those places and somebody comes in to film you, like, don't let it happen, you know, like, keep, you know, you got to keep certain things on the DL, you know, I come, I'm a journalist, and at the same time, that's not something I would want to blow up the spot about. Now, we have had articles in High Times about smoke shacks, but we certainly aren't filming inside there or revealing their exact locations or anything like that, so. But just to, to put in a little side note there inside edition set up a bunch of hidden cameras in the smoke shack oh. so they like surreptitiously filmed people smoking and That's then when horrible. they came out they like they jumped them and like had them on camera they even followed these two guys down the slope and every time they happened to fall hey skiers and snowboarders occasionally fall they would make it like you know oh that's because they're high you see <laughs> they're so too stupid. stoned to ski that is so stupid and this is in breckenridge in colorado that is like, in colorado man, and the, the reason why even though it's legal in colorado is the ski resort is on u.s forest land hmm. uh, federal land pot is still prohibited so <clears throat> very very ridiculous kind of thing that they're paying a lot of attention to so we, we wish uh, everyone luck in rebuilding leo's let's not tell anyone where it is this time <laughs> yeah, keep a yeah, deal yeah. Definitely. So, uh, that's sort of what's going on in news. Uh, next week, we will have a brand new issue of High Times to break down for you guys. Yeah, with the Strongest Strains article, right? Yeah, that's right. That's the, badass. Uh, Nico Escondido, yes, our, our colleague, has the Strongest Strains on Earth. Is that right? Yes, it is. And, uh, yeah, some really high THC strains. We t- had those tested at a lot of different labs. A lot of times people come to us, oh, this tested at 32%. Well, one time at one lab. you know. So we take that same sample and test it over three different, four different labs sometimes and come up usually with a a lower result um, because we're trying to get the, you know, the facts instead of just, you know, the the highest numbers. We really want to know actually what that THC level is and report that back as, you know. So even when our magazine prints it as, you know, 26% is the highest and you've heard of one being 28 or 30 the truth is those are tested one time. These are these we've tested a bunch of times. So 
And they're all, what are they, over 23% THC? Yeah, I believe all the ones that made it this year are over 23. Um, you know, and again, that's a measure of potency, and it's it's all well and good, but there's great pot that's under 23%. It's just, uh, you know, for us, it's, it's kind of, and, and as the breeders and the growers, it's a point of pride if you can kind of push that limit. So people love that, and they love to hear when their strains test highly. Like that strawberry cough, we never expected that to test so high, and yet there yeah, it the, is. Yeah, the Cushman... Uh, strawberry coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, everybody loved it, and we always, you know, enjoy the flavor and the, and the unique feeling. But it, you know, we never thought it would test, you know, up above twenty percent, and it does well over. And uh, you know, that was pretty impressive to find out. Yeah, and it's. It, I mean, look, it, you're right. It is a number, and there's lots of stuff that goes into a high. That's not just about the percentage of THC, but. The Strongest Strains on Earth thing is pretty cool. You know, we were with uh, Scott in L.A. and that OG Ghost Train Haze, which was our strongest strain last year, I believe. Mm -hmm. You know, it it means a lot to the growers, too, to be recognized like that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a fun one for that issue. Uh, You know, of course, we have this huge event coming up in Denver. I'm not even going to promote it because it's... It's it's so vast and enormous right now. But listen to this lineup. Just if you happen to catch every concert, and it's hard because right. uh, there's only a limited number of tickets for each. But Friday night, Ice Cube. Uh, Saturday night, Slightly Stupid and Mac Miller. Sunday night, Snoop Dogg and Wiz Khalifa. Crazy. What a weekend. That's going to be nuts. Yeah, uh, 420 <laughs> weekend in Colorado. Pretty decent. Yeah. <laughs> People are coming from miles around, man. I, I You know, it's going to be wild but you know what we did get a bigger venue uh we're at the denver mart uh we've worked out a lot of the logistics of getting people in and out and uh yeah hopefully that will not be the way that it was last year with people waiting in line and well actually speaking of that i was yeah. gonna save this for the q a section but since we're on it right now why don't i just ask you uh right now we got a question uh hey dan and mike i was wondering about your uh upcoming cannabis cup in denver i really want to know I really want to attend, but uh, no one has talked yet about any improvements that HT will be making to have the event more enjoyable for the attendees. I've not attended any cups in the past, but from what I understand, the difference in the Denver Cup is night and day compared to other medical cups. I've been hearing horror stories of four-hour waits just to get in. It worries me. Please put my worries to rest. I'm sure others would love to hear that HT is doing everything they can to make this event more enjoyable. Well, we have good news, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The venue's huge. Uh, It's the Denver Mart. We have arranged for much more security and much more, uh, you know, workers and volunteers and people that are going to be getting people in as quickly as possible. Now, you're still going to probably going to have to go through a search uh, and get your wristband and all that. But we're going to have many more people there doing that. So um, last time, the, the, the thing slowing everything down was the security um, that was hired to, uh, you know, just to make sure people aren't coming in with guns and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we that's something we, you have to do and people have to go through. Uh, but we have more people there to do it and we have multiple entrances. So um, it should definitely work a, a lot smoother this year. And we're excited to be at that new venue. I mean, we did enjoy the old venue. Yeah, we loved um, but Exto, I think we, but Yeah, we just kind of outgrew, outgrew it. We outgrew it, yeah. And, uh, and we had, like, you know, 15,000 people in a, in a venue that was not built for that. <laughs> so we're going to be uh, in a lot, uh, a much better position this year. Yes. All right. Well, uh, what do you say? We, we have a pretty substantial interview to get to. We got yeah. about a half hour uh, with Bill. He sat down with us. What do you say we get to that now? Yeah, let's do that. But first, um, perhaps a word from uh, one of our sponsors. Hey, uh, yeah, how about BC Northern Lights? We should shout them out there. They have a great plan coming up where we're going to be giving away 
a roommate, which is their small sized grow box. It grows four plants. Uh, we haven't worked out exactly how we're going to do that. So just stay tuned with us. We're working with them. It's a big giveaway. So uh, we want to make sure, you know, we give it to the right person and, 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 and we get, you know, a lot of uh, traction out of it, as they say. So we're working on that. But in the meantime, check them out at bcnorthernlights.com. They have a number of different grow boxes for different needs. If you have access to seeds and clones, you can get the producer and just produce a bunch of plants all at once. If you need a system that has everything all in one, you have your seedlings, you have your clones, you have your mother plants, and you have your flowering plants all inside one machine. They have the bloom box. As I said, they have that roommate. Give them a call at 888-236-1266 or check them out at bcnorthernlights.com. If you mention free weed, A, they're going to love you and they're going to know that you already know what's up. And B, you're going to get free nutrients for six months uh, along with that grow box, which is a nice added bonus. You can call them anytime for customer service. You have a problem, heat, pests, anything. They will help you. They will answer your questions. bcnorthernlights.com. All right, we're back, and we are speaking uh, with Bill Ayers, a distinguished professor of education and senior university scholar at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome, Mr. Ayers. Thank you very much. Now retired, incidentally. Retired, uh, but yes, still. I used to be a senior. I used to be all those things, but I'm now retired. <laughs> Uh, but still traveling around and uh, talking to people about, I guess, education reform and things of that nature? Uh, education reform, often. Um, this month I've been traveling a lot talking about Brown versus Board of Education and the continuing fight against white supremacy. do a lot of talking on college campuses about radical politics, uh, all of it, and sometimes even legalization of marijuana. Excellent, excellent. Um, well, uh, let's go back to radical politics and, uh, um, I guess, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, I guess how you uh, became a radical or became a leftist and then a radical. Well, I think that, I think that um, if you go way back, I've written a lot about this in a couple of memoirs, but when I was a student at the University of Michigan, um, I had been involved in the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Freedom Movement. Um, you know, as a student and as, you know, kind of a peripheral participant. And when the war in Vietnam began, I um, threw myself into the effort to stop that war. I was arrested in October of 1965, did 10 days in jail. Um, and that was a, an enlightening experience. I came out and, and spent a lot more time trying to open my eyes and see the world as it really was and pay attention. And the more I looked and the deeper I got, the more I went to the root of things, and going to the root of things is how one becomes a radical. So I wasn't just interested in how to stop that war, although I desperately wanted to stop the war in Vietnam. But I became interested in um, what is it about our system that makes war so seemingly inevitable and so constant? Why are we always at war when we like to think of ourselves as a peaceful people? And those kind of questions um, made me question the kind of fundamental foundations of the system, and that made me a radical. And uh, going back to that that time, those early days, were were there certain people that uh, were influences for you, or were inspiring for you when you went on to this track? Many, many people. Um, I mean, I, I was I was blown away and and really enlightened and awakened by the Black Freedom Movement, and the people who I was drawn to were the students who were 
just a little bit older than me. So people like Charles Cobb, Charlie Cobb, Jim Foreman, Stokely Carmichael, um, eventually Rap Brown. These people were hugely important to me. Um, there were other people in, you know, I'm from Chicago, and so there were a lot of Chicagoans who I looked to um, as kind of beacons and mentors. And uh, one was Jane Adams, who founded the, the um, Hull House, the first settlement house in the United States, and who, uh, of whom J. Edgar Hoover, interestingly, the, the, you know, leader of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, called Jane Adams in the 20s the most dangerous woman in America. And 50 years later, still at the helm of his criminal enterprise, the FBI, he called my wife, Bernadine Dorn, the most dangerous woman in America. So I feel a strong affinity <laughs> with Jane Adams. And it's the only time J. Edgar Hoover and I ever agreed, incidentally, <laughs> when he thought Bernadine was the most dangerous woman in America. I thought so, too. Um, but, yeah, so, so, yeah, a lot of people inspired me. I think the activists were the main inspiration, the people who were willing to put their bodies on the line for what they believed and willing to take the risk, and that's what drew me to do the same thing. Now, um, you also said in your book that, uh, I guess, the atomic bomb uh, played a role uh, as well as a very young child. Well, when I grew up, I mean, I grew up, I was born in 1944, so I grew up under the sticky shadow of the atomic attack on Japan, and that colored my whole consciousness as it did everybody of this generation. I mean, we never, and, and similarly with you, you, you guys are a lot younger than I am, but you've never lived in a world without nuclear weapons. And so that kind of sits there as a kind of an existential background for how we see the world. And for me, um, growing up in a time of, of uh, you know, relative prosperity, but kind of continual war. So. World War II ends just as I'm born, but then there's Korea, then there's Vietnam, then there's Santo Domingo, then there's, you know, continual invasions and occupations, and it's gone on my whole life. But certainly the atomic bomb became for me a kind of a symbol of what it meant to try to figure out how to live in opposition to something that you, you, you couldn't exactly change, but you could certainly uh, define yourself as a person who you know, opposed something, and, and the atomic atomic bomb and atomic energy was part of that. Uh, so you, you started off uh, in the mid-60s um, with the SDS and sort of the new left movement, and then sort of as you became more radical, by 1969, uh, I guess, you know, you were a, a founding member of the Weather Underground. Um, I guess take us back to that time, because now... You know, people throw the word uh, domestic terrorist around and they throw these things around. But take us back to that time, because from what I've heard, you know, it wasn't all peace and love. And there was certainly uh, a lot of, uh, you know, fighting in the streets going on. Well, you know, it, it, it's actually the, the conditions were changing. I joined Students for Democratic Society when I was 20 years old. And I was arrested opposing the war in Vietnam in 1965. And I did 10 days in jail, as I said. And that was just as the American war was expanding and growing and, um, and American involvement was becoming the defining feature of our time and of that war. Um, so I was arrested in 1965. At that time, something like 15% of Americans opposed the war. Something like 70% of Americans were in favor of the war. Three years later, after, uh, after many arrests and many demonstrations and many 
kind of militant struggles in the streets, a majority of Americans opposed the war. What happened in those three years? In that, by 1968, a majority of Americans opposed the war, and of course a majority of people around the world opposed it. And very briefly what happened was not only was there anti-war sentiment and organizing going on, and I was very much part of that, more important than that was the black freedom movement came out pretty decisively against the war. If you read one thing by Martin Luther King, read his speech on April 4th, 1967, one year to the day before he was assassinated, and you will see the, you know, the most articulate statement against the war from the black freedom movement. He called the United States the greatest purveyor of violence on earth. He called for the United States to get on the right side of the world revolution. Um, he said no black uh, man should go 10,000 miles away to fight for a freedom he doesn't enjoy in Mississippi. And other black leaders, Muhammad Ali, there's a wonderful new movie about Ali called The Trials of Muhammad Ali. It's the three years when he opposed the war and was stripped of his title, the three years he didn't fight that he became a world figure. So the black freedom movement turned against the war and very decisively. And then the, the, maybe even more important than that was veterans came home and told the truth about what they were asked to do in Vietnam and what they saw there. Um, one of the most famous was John Kerry, who's now our bloody Secretary of State. But he came home from Vietnam and testified before the Senate, and he said, we commit war crimes in Vietnam every day, not as a matter of choice, but as a matter of, of policy. The country turned against the war. We thought the war would end in the spring of 1968. A million people were, were needlessly murdered, but we thought it was coming to an end. But it didn't come to an end. Johnson stepped aside um, five days after Johnson announced he wouldn't run for president again. Uh, Martin Luther King was dead. Two months after that, Robert Kennedy was killed. And two months after that, Henry Kissinger emerged with a secret plan to expand the war under the guise of, of ending the war. And so we went on. And every week that the war went on, 6,000 people were murdered. Every week, with no end in sight. And even within my own family, I'm in the middle of five kids, um, we, it created a crisis. Nobody knew what to do. Everyone opposed the war, not everyone, but a majority, and how could you stop it? So one of my brothers joined the Democratic Party and tried to build a peace wing. One went to the, to the factories of the Midwest and tried to build a communist movement among workers. One went to the communes. One went to... Um, Canada and then and, and helped people get to Europe who were escaping the madness of the war and I was one of the founders of the Weather Underground I don't think any of us what any of us did was brilliant but I don't think what any of us did was crazy either so it wasn't like I was once kind of a mild-mannered radical and then I became crazy I wasn't crazy uh, the war was crazy and the world was crazy and we were trying to figure out how to stop it and so in the Weather Underground, we cre created an organization that we thought could survive the coming repression and take the war to the war makers. Were we successful? Not very. Um, now, do I regret that part of my life? Not really, not at all. I mean, there were things that we did that were stupid, but there are things I did last week that were stupid too. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm willing to kind of say it was extreme and that we did cross lines of legality and maybe common sense, but it wasn't nuts. It was in response to a murderous world. And, uh, and, and part of the reason that you, uh, I guess, weren't, weren't uh, jailed for that, I guess, is because the government was using the COINTELPRO program and, uh, 
and basically they 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 used illegal tactics to sort of infiltrate the group. Is that correct? And they never did infiltrate the group. That's the beautiful thing. The reason I didn't go to jail is because I was underground, or I would have gone to jail for quite a while. But by the time we turned ourselves in, which was <clears throat> 10 years, 11 years after we went underground, um, many of the charges had been dropped against us because of gross governmental misconduct. And it wasn't a matter of, uh, you know, a, a bad wiretap here or a bad wiretap there. It was much more severe than that. Um, they, they uh, for example, there was a written plan to kidnap uh, Bernadine's and my nephew, uh, who was two years old, and force us to turn ourselves in. Once that document was revealed in a, in a, at a moment that was, for its time, similar to the, what's going on now with Edward Snowden, there was all this information that was hidden, and suddenly it was visible. Well, once they had a document that J. Edgar Hoover had seen that was going to kidnap a two-year-old um, in order to get at his aunt and uncle, uh, no jury in America would convict us for that, so they dropped the charges. It was serious government misconduct. And, and you know, you, if you make an analogy, the way it felt was very much the way it feels now with Edward Snowden. Every time the government claims to be, well, yeah, it was a little excessive, but we mostly we were good, uh, Edward Snowden and Glenn Greedwald drop another document and to proves that they are that there's a secret government that that is a shadow government and that's overreaching in profound ways and yeah we have to um, we have to stop that and now uh, most of our our viewers of course know you by name but some of our younger viewers may not be as familiar with some of the background so when when you talk about avoiding uh, going to prison because of these activities by the government um, that that was for uh, using bombs as part of the demonstration against the war is that right mm-hmm. Yeah. The Weather Underground, when, when Students for Democratic Society split apart in 1970, and it split apart precisely because we couldn't end the war, and the crisis in democracy also was a crisis in the anti-war movement and a crisis in the student movement. No one could figure out what to do next. And as I described, in my own family, people chose to do many things. I chose to be, be one of the organizers of the Weather Underground. That was an organization that was illegal. We were underground. We lived under assumed names for 11 years. We were never captured. Um, and among the things we did, we wrote and published and agitated, but we also put bombs in, um, in public buildings um, in a way that where we, we never caused an injury, we never caused anybody to die, but we did issue a screaming alarm against the war. And the most dramatic were things like a bomb put in the Pentagon, um, which caused, you know, about a million dollars worth of damage, um, just as it, which was about a day's worth of money spent in, in the destruction of Vietnam. But it was a dramatic um, outcry against the war, and that's what we were wanted for. We were wanted for, uh, well, I had two counts against me, conspiracy to cross state lines to foment um, uh, rebellion and conspiracy to cross state lines to destroy government property. Both of those charges were dropped against me um, because the government had, had committed such heinous crimes themselves and pretty much because everybody wanted to forget about Vietnam by the time I turned myself in. 
And I imagine that, that that wasn't, you know, your first thought that I'm going to use this particular technique, but could you just explain a little bit of the thought process? You kind of touched on it, but was it sort of using something that belonged to the system against them, like that kind of violence, or was it just uh, the best way that you could think of to, to draw attention to what you were trying to change? Well, I think we were trying to scream out an alarm against this war and to draw attention to it and to, and also to um, build a sense that the government was not um, impenetrable, that they were not all-powerful, that we could mobilize a force that could, that could um, uh, not only hide ourselves from them, but eventually defeat them. And we thought of ourselves as revolutionaries. And so, yeah, we, you know, it wasn't the, the tactic. We were, none of us, and certainly not me, was ever a tactician. We never thought of ourselves as people who are big on tactics. But what we did do is we, we discovered that, um, you know, we, we weren't certainly an army that was going to march against their army, but at the same time, we felt that we could do what we at the time called um, armed propaganda, or, or another way of saying it is kind of intentional destruction of property, intentional public destruction of property in order to draw attention to the great crimes and injustices that our government was participating in. That was what we attempted to do, and I think we did do that. I don't think we succeeded in ending the war, and that's our great tragedy to this day, that we couldn't stop the war. And I think we all feel terrible about that. But So that means that the war dragged on until the Vietnamese ended it, and the war cost three million lives, not a million. Um, the American people opposed it by the time it had cost a million lives, which was a million too many. But three million, you can hardly wrap your mind around it. Um, and we didn't stop it. So that's our great shame. Now, um, I know that, uh, you know, in the interim of time since uh, coming out from the underground, um, you've obviously, uh, you know, become a professor and worked in educational reform, but also juvenile justice reform. And I wanted to ask you just about the drug war and uh, the war on pot. I mean, do you have uh, any advice over all of these years from, from, you know, radical to leftist to all of these different ways of going about it? I mean, do you have any advice um, to the people sort of trying to end marijuana prohibition? Well, I think that, I think that marijuana prohibition's days are numbered. And I think that it's, you know, I think that High Times can take a lot of credit for that. I think that, I think that just like the... Um, the shift in consciousness, the shift in framing around queer rights, around gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered rights. Um, Fifteen years ago, it was unthinkable that, um, that we would be in the world that we're in today around gay rights. I think 15 years ago, it was unthinkable that we would have state legislatures and, and governors and attorneys general and presidents saying, you know, this isn't so bad. And I think that's a huge, huge shift in consciousness and a huge victory um, for sanity and for, you know, normal life. Um, it's kind of crazy. When I think back, you know, this is, we were talking about growing up in Ann Arbor. You know, John Sinclair was a very dear friend of mine, and we worked closely together on a lot of things. And the fact that John Sinclair got 10 years for two joints will always be riveted in my consciousness, you know. Ten years in state prison for two joints, it was an outrage, and, and today that wouldn't happen. And I think that's a great tribute to, as I say, those who agitated and those who publicized and those who organized and changed the frame. But it's also a great testament to the fact that when ordinary people stand up and say, look, I smoked a joint, so what? You know, it's 
not a big deal, you know, and, 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 and it shouldn't be criminalized. And the criminalizing of everything is a destructive, not just to the human beings involved, but to, um, you know, but to our society. Did you see the David Brooks column where he, where he talked about, uh, in the New York Times, where he talked about <laughs> smoking dope? Yeah, he said he smoked it, but he doesn't think it should be legal. Yeah, uh, but it was hilarious because, you know, he starts off and he says, you know, when I was young, we sat around and smoked dope. You know, it was it was not bad, and, and it, it was fine. But then we moved on, and we realized it was silly. Meanwhile, he acts like it's some kind of, like, superficial thing. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of people have had their lives wrecked by the criminal justice system intervening in their lives because of marijuana. He's some privileged white guy who gets to walk away from it all, but uh, it's an outrage. And so I think people like Brooks should be called on their stupidity and on their, you know, kind of anesthetized privileged position looking at this issue, and we should decriminalize it immediately, let everybody out of jail who went to jail for marijuana immediately, and uh, get over it. You yes, know? The, that's the on. thing that, that people don't take into account when they come up with these legalization initiatives or, or, uh, or decriminalization. It's never about getting people out of jail for the crime that is now, you know, not a crime anymore. And it that should be part be. of it. And that's one of the things that, uh, that smart lawyers and, and political movements are going to have to take up because, look, we just went through this around juvenile justice. We just got the Supreme Court to agree um, to oppose... Um, um, uh, mandatory life without possibility of parole for kids. Well, now we have to go back and see those people who are in prison and let them out. Went to prison on those uh, on, on those conditions. Same true is true of marijuana. Once we come to our senses, we have to rethink and and give reparations to those who suffered uh, because of the draconian laws that we had in place at the time. Now. Um we can't talk to you without, I guess, talking about the uh, 2008 election, of course. And I know you've probably uh, heard it all before, but take us back. I mean, I guess I'll preface this for people who may not know, but um, both Hillary Clinton and uh, the McCain and, of course, Sarah Palin campaign brought up uh, sort of your relationship with Obama. And so take take us back to 2008 and, and just sort of how that all came about and and. and what that felt like for you? Well, you know, in 2008, no one could figure out how to run against this fast-rising, hard-charging, charismatic politician from Illinois, and they couldn't think of what to do. And so they developed a narrative, and the narrative was, we don't know anything about Obama, but we know that he has these shady friends, a black nationalist preacher, a, a, a Catholic priest on the South Side, and so on. And one of the shady characters was me, uh, a so-called unrepentant domestic terrorist. And so tried to kind of demonize these people <clears throat> and at the same time do the kind of guilt by association thing. And that's how it began. Hmm. But for you personally, when you heard your name invoked in, in that sort of national campaign atmosphere, I mean, um, that's got to be a bit shocking. I, I don't think you were expecting that, right? No, I wasn't expecting it, and it was absolutely shocking. Um, uh, it, it occurred, actually, in my dining room. I had a group of students over <coughs> who were uh, having seminar in my dining room. And uh, as the seminar ended, somebody turned on the TV, and Hillary Clinton 
and Barack Obama were having their last debate. And George Stephanopoulos raised the question of his association. And um, Obama said, you know, looked slightly stricken, but yeah, you know, he knew me and so on. And my students absolutely fell on the floor. They were astonished to see her my name. Some of them, you know, in disbelief, one student turned to me and said, oh, my God, that guy has the same name as yours. Because <laughs> Stephanopoulos had just said, you know, um, what about your relationship with Bill Ayers? And um, another student said to her, well, that's because they're the same guy. I mean, it was completely crazy, and I, it felt surreal. It felt surreal through the whole thing. Luckily, I had uh, my partner and my three kids, all of whom had given me advice about this and said, look, you should just stay quiet. Just do your work and don't pay attention to it. And that's what I did. And um, it allowed me to stay sane as the whole world around me seemed to be going up in smoke quite crazy. <laughs> All right. And uh, now one more question about Obama. Now, I, obviously, you guys aren't the best of friends uh, from, from what I've read and know. But um, why don't you think he's done more to sort of uh, end the drone strikes and uh, end the war on drugs. I mean, clearly he's he's ver been very outspoken in his campaign and even prior to that that it's a failed policy. So um, I guess, w w why do you think he hasn't been able to do more? You know, I may, I may be the only progressive person in America who's not disappointed in Obama because I had no expectations that he would be a progressive person. And the reason is, all through the 2008 campaign, and frankly, knowing his record in Illinois and who he is as a politician and a person, but all through the 2008 campaign, candidate Obama said, I'm a moderate, middle-of-the-road, pragmatic politician. The right wing looked at him and said, no, he's a secret Muslim, secret socialist, pals around with black nationalists and terrorists. He's got this other agenda. And the left wing looked at him and said, I think he's winking at me, but he wasn't winking. He is exactly who he said he was, and his record in Illinois holds it up, and his record in Washington holds it up. He is a moderate, pragmatic politician. But the one thing to remember about Obama is that during 2008, when asked who would Martin Luther King support, without missing a beat, he said Martin Luther King wouldn't support any of us. He'd be in the streets building a movement for justice. And what I take that to mean, and I think, I think it's, a, it's a terrific comment, because what I take it to mean is that while there's obviously power in Washington, power in the White House, power in that medieval auction block called the Congress, power in the Pentagon, there's also power in the street, in the neighborhood, in the classroom, in the university, in the workplace, and that's the power we have access to. So we shouldn't expect Obama to bring us peace. We should build a peace movement in which we give Obama the option of, uh, in which we insist on peace. Um, and Obama will respond to that, just as George Bush would if we had a peace movement. Our job is to create power on the ground. And the job of a politician is to respond to that power. He's not a king. He's not a, he's not a radical. He's not a progressive. You can say he knows these things, and I would say, yes, he's not stupid. He's one of the smartest people you'll ever meet. On the other hand, he's a politician who's pragmatic and responding to pressure and power that exists elsewhere. We have to be the ones who take responsibility for that and not beg him to do the right thing, but insist that we will do the right thing and that official power will follow. 
Hey, Bill, uh, we're almost out of time for this segment, but speaking of that topic, I'm curious about what you think of modern activism. Uh, you mentioned uh, Snowden before and, and sort of what he has done. Also, we recently had the Occupy Wall Street movement kind of take root here in New York. W- what are your thoughts about uh, what these groups are either doing right or wrong? How do you feel? Well, you know, I have been a big participant in Occupy. Um, I, w- I was in the New York uh, occupy for a while, but mostly in in the Midwest. And the fact is that you know, the, Occupy provides us with a great example of the fact that activism, you know, takes a lot of different forms, and you can't always predict what's about to happen. You, but you can be prepared to respond to what's going on. If somebody had asked me before Occupy the day before Occupy happened, if it was a good idea to set up a tent city on Wall Street, I would have said, no, I don't, I don't think so. What's going to come of it? But damn, it was a great idea. And it was a huge success in the sense that I know a lot of leftists like to say it wasn't a success, but wasn't a success in taking power, but that was never what it could do. What it did do is it changed the frame of the discussion. So the whole notion of a 1% and a 99%, that didn't exist pre-Occupy. And what was the response of power? to occupy. They spent a long time ignoring it, then they ridiculed it, then they tried to co-opt it, and then they beat the shit out of it. And then they repeated that again and again. And they're still doing it. I loved it when Bill Clinton uh, told them how they should dress. I thought, wow, what world does he live in? You know, I mean, the idea that the, 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 one of the leaders of the 1% would come and tell us how we should dress to be more effective as if we're trying to do his bidding. These kinds of movements give me tremendous hope that uh, not only Occupy, but Anonymous, not only Anonymous, but a lot of, but the environmental activism that's going on everywhere. Not only that, but, but the kind of social media. And one of the things I love about the current moment that we live in is we have more access to more information. We have more ways of communicating with one another than we've ever had before. And our job is to try to continually um, open our eyes, see the world as it really is, um, be astonished at the beauty of it and the joy and the ecstasy all around, but also be astonished at the at the unfairness, at the injustice, at the pain we visit upon one another. And then we have to act. And in acting, we don't know what will come next. We act as an act of hope, and then we doubt and rethink our actions and try again. That's my rhythm for every day. Open your eyes, pay attention, um, be astonished, act, doubt, and keep going. Cool. Um, I want to clear up one last thing. Um, We've heard over the years, and if you check Wikipedia and all those things, um, that the name uh, Weatherman came from uh, the Bob Dylan song. Now, is that in fact the case or, or not? Yes, it is the case. It came from a line that Terry Robbins was one of the people who died in the townhouse. We had three of our own people mm-hmm. uh, died at the beginning of the Weather Underground. And, and I, when I said earlier that no one was ever hurt or killed, I meant beyond those three. Our three people killed themselves, and it was a horrible, terrible, tragic loss. But Terry was one of the people who um, you know, really played a primary role in writing 
uh, a document inside Students for a Democratic Society, and it was a dense, difficult, complicated, ideological document, impossible to read, and then he put the whimsical title on it, You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows, which is a line from Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues. Uh, we often thought later that if he'd ch- chosen the line, The Pump Don't Work Because the Vandals Took the Handles, from the same song, we would have been called The Vandals, and that might have been more appropriate, who knows. <laughs> All right. Um, well, thank you for coming on the show and uh, let people know if they want to, I guess, keep up with uh, your writing or your talks or your events or teaching and videos uh, where they can go, I guess, to find out more about uh, about those things. Well, you know, I have a faith. I mean, my writing is, you know, you can find that on any um, independent bookstore website or Amazon or any of that, but but I have a a, a, um, a, a website called BillAres.org, and I'm on Facebook, and all the events where I'm speaking and so on are always on Facebook, and um, I really appreciate you guys um, calling me up and talking to me, and I thank you for doing the work you do. Thank Thanks you. so much, Bill. We really appreciate your time. All right, you guys, as I always say, you can't have free weed without seeds, and you don't get free seeds from just anybody, but you do get them from Gorilla Seed Bank, and you check them out at G-O-R-I-L-L-A-Cannabis-Seeds.co.uk. Now, that's a mouthful, but once you get there, you're going to find out about worldwide delivery, free seeds when you place orders. In fact, if you mention free weed, you definitely get free seeds. Uh, discreet, stealthy, and quick shipping, which is very important when you're trying to get going and growing. Uh, great prices. You can compare their prices with other seed banks and you'll see. Uh, very eco-friendly products. Uh, the shipping materials and everything they use is great. So check them out. Cannabis Seeds from Gorilla Seed Bank. Uh, they also have a phone number here. And if you talk to them and mention the show, they will put free seeds in your packet. So check out their website and support our sponsors. You know you need seeds. They have everything you want from every seed bank you can imagine, along with all kinds of specialty types. So give them a call and check them out. Gorilla Seed Bank, thanks for the support. All right, well, according to my uh, calendar here, it has been a fortnight since our last strain. Wow. So yeah. we need to do Strain of the Fortnite. I think we do. <laughs> All right. Let's Excellent. do it. Excellent. I have a great one on, on store here. Not sure if we've done this one before. I don't think we have. It's kind of tough to go and figure all that out. And if it's a repeat, I'm sorry. But <laughs> this one <laughs> this one is worth it. It's called Nigerian. Uh, you can get it from our friend JJNYC. He's from Top Dog Seeds. And uh, where you can find him and his seed auctions is thcfarmer.com. Anyway, the Nigerian is a tremendously amazing sativa. These are African sativas, and they hold a special place in the hearts of people who are uh, what I call the Haze Lovers Club. You know, Piff, uh, Uptown Haze, all that stuff. This Nigerian is is the best of all of that, and for good reason. Because uh, the fits of laughter that you get, the old school up high that you get, you know, people call it weed, you know, jokingly, but the truth is it does make you feel like you're getting high for the first time again sometimes with these strains. Um, You know, real African genetics really can energize you. It's something that they've kind of always been known for, the Durban poison and all those really electric uh, African strains. Um, Some people get paranoia from it, so, you you know, amateur smokers should should kind of beware, 
of that heart racingness. You know, if you're prepared for it, it's quite a fun ride. But if you're not prepared for it, it, it can surprise you that marijuana can make you feel that way. Now, one of the things about that electric buzz that doesn't have much of a ceiling makes your heart race is that medical patients can use that for things like depression. Uh, a timely thing right now would be seasonal affective disorder, which is just being bummed out in the wintertime, I guess. Uh, uh, PTSD for uh, veterans and people who've been through traumatic situations. Um, some forms of anxiety. All of these can be helped with Nigerian as long as it's used properly and, and you prepare yourself mentally to anticipate that kind of rising high. Uh, if you can sit back and enjoy the ride, it can be very amazing. As far as the lineage, uh, JJ took the Nigerian silk and crossed it with a trusty uh, NL5 Hayes male, and that's how he sort of got back to that kind of Nigerian silk, the notorious kind of clone-only Nigerian strain. Um, which is really, you know, tough to grow. And that's the thing about these sativas is that they require some patience. Uh, they grow long and lanky. They stretch. Uh, their typical spear-like colas do fill out when they're fed properly. Uh, and so the yields can be considered decent for a sativa, but you're looking at about 10 to 11 weeks of flowering. So you factor that in. Um, anyway, I hope you guys can get your hands on some Nigerian and grow it out because it's really unique and really amazing. And I highly, highly recommend it. All right, very good. And uh, if you uh, want to check out some other strains, definitely get uh, the official High Times Field Guide to Marijuana Strains. That's the Danny Danko uh, publication. Yeah, yes. that's my book. And uh, I know I've mentioned this before, maybe not even followed through, but uh, if you want to get copies of that uh, signed, I can do that for you. Uh, just email us at freeweed at hightimes.com and we'll try to find a way to work that out, uh, whether it be PayPal or whatnot. So, there's that. And uh, now I want to get into our cultivation topic. Yeah, you know, it's uh, cold and snowy and rainy in New York. But on the other side of the country, it has been very dry and very little rain. So uh, you had a good idea to talk about some uh, growing and drought conditions tips. Yeah, it's just some tips for people because, you know, as uh, these situations get worse and worse, uh, droughts become inevitable and people have been going through it. I know 2012 was a drought year, uh, 2013, and now again in 2014, we're looking at that as well. Um, uh, so uh, the most important thing is that you start with an, an, a highly absorbent growing medium. You need uh, a medium that you're growing in to be able to store large amounts of rain or the irrigation water that you're going to give it. So that being said, you need materials in there that, 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 you know, hold on to water. And a few of those are peat moss, which holds lots of water, uh, coconut coir, uh, coir, I don't know how, how, <laughs> how to, <laughs> something, coconut fibers, um, they hold a lot of their own weight in water and are great for that. Compost is really great. I always talk about that as a way to loosen soil and, and hold water. Um, even things like sawdust, uh, vermiculite, perlite, uh, leaf mold, which is kind of like uh, pre-composted, you know, ground up leaves. And of course, water absorb absorbing polymers. And those are those little crystals that you can mix in. And those are great because they're tiny. Uh, then when they fill up with water, they, they grow to much larger uh, sizes and they create air pockets in your soil when they do that back and forth. They go from dry to wet, uh, releasing the water slowly. And that can really give you a lot of time between waterings. Um, now, outdoor plants in full sun need water all the time. So 
these polymers can really help you out if you mix them into your soil. Uh, another great idea is putting a bunch of them kind of at the bottom of your hole, uh, and then they kind of create this little mini well that uh, your roots can, can dip into when they need water. Um, mulching is very important. That just means covering up the layer, your layers of soil with some type of a mulching product. Um, you can do that with all kinds of different materials, basically from hay to wheat straw to uh, compost um, to even newspaper, which helps to keep like uh, weeds from popping up and stuff like that. But uh, a lot of those things are great to have cocoa bean hulls, rice hulls, anything that can kind of put a layer between your soil and the, the hot sun because it'll allow uh, water to penetrate through it and it'll hold water longer and it won't just run right through your soil. Um, another thing you can do is use a wetting agent when you water and that just makes the uh, water absorb into the soil better. Uh, what that is really there's a lot of different ones you can buy and purchase that are expensive but you can also just use plain dishwashing soap uh, about a drop per gallon in your water and that will help the water very much to uh, be absorbed by the soil so a lot of it's not running off or um, kind of staying on top of the soil and then kind of dipping through it. Other things, of course, are seep wells. Now, that's if you're in an area that has water nearby, if you dig down deep enough, you can find uh, where the water table is and, and sort of use ways to suck that water up to your plants, uh, including the polymers and other ways that people use with PVC tubes that go down um, to where the water is. Uh, of course, you can collect and store rainwater. That's really important. Um, you can get a 55-gallon drum, uh, and uh, that'll fill up pretty quickly if you're able to maybe lay out a tarp or some kind of thing that can catch rainwater to fill up that drum. And anytime it rains, you can, you know, quadruple or much more than that um, the amount of water that you have near your plants by storing that water in that 55-gallon drum. Uh, you know, I'd say even oxygenate the water a bit as well just to keep it from being stagnant for a long time. You won't get mosquitoes and things like that. Um, there's ways that you can do this with the runoff from your gutters in your house that actually fill up these buckets and then once the buckets are full the runoff just runs off as well so um, that's a bunch of different kind of collection system things that you can do uh, in order to just have more water water is really heavy and that's the thing about these these buckets these barrels a 55 gallon drum filled with water is like 450 pounds so set it where you want it to be before it ever fills up and pretty much plan on keeping it there unless it's empty. I mean, basically, those are a bunch of different ways you can uh, you can conserve water and you can use it to your, to your best uh, degree if you are in a place with drought conditions. The other thing you need to be concerned with is constantly going back and forth to this gorilla garden, if that's what it is, with water is going to create pathways that you might not want to your plants, uh, particularly in drought conditions because all the other plants around it are dead which also brings up stealth, which means that these big bright green plants in the middle of a uh, area of drought are going to attract attention and you're going to have to find ways to hide those plants either from the sky or from the side or whatever. Um, so, you know, keep that in mind when you're planting in drought conditions, the, um, the visibility of your plants is going to be higher as well. So you may want to keep a lower profile, low canopy, some type of covering that's opaque and lets light through. Um, those are a bunch of different options, but that is how you grow 
marijuana in drought conditions. Yes, don't let drought stop you from growing great pot. So thank you for that tip, Danko, and we hope that helps some of our friends out west that are suffering through some drought conditions right now. What do you say we do a few uh, questions from our listeners? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Cushyman writes, Hey guys, I have a question about flushing. I realize uh, when feeding synthetics, you must flush the salts. However, when growing organically as far as flushing newts from the soil, I'm really struggling to understand the point of this. When growing organically, what would you be trying to flush? Microbes? I'm basically running a fairly hot soil and feeding compost tea. Thanks for your input. I really enjoy the show. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the point is that uh, you're flushing to remove almost anything from that, uh, any excess uh, newts, whether they be organic or not, from your soil. Now, if you've been feeding really lightly, now you say you have a hot, fairly hot soil and you're feeding compost tea. Uh, fairly hot soil means that, you know, you're you're at the edge of where you might even be burning your plants with newts. So there's a lot of nutrient salts and things built up in your soil. And just because they're organic doesn't mean they won't make your pot taste bad. So I would highly recommend flushing out any kind of a hot soil, whether it's organic or synthetic. Um, Organic's typically a little easier to flush because hopefully you used less during the process and there's less buildup. But, uh, both organic and soil grows do need flushing, so keep that in mind. And, uh, you know, nutrient buildup happens with both styles of growing. All right, cool. Hopefully that helps Cushy Man. Let's move on to Blue Ridge Grow. Uh, hi, Danny. I really enjoy the show. Uh, I need some advice about rooting clones inside and moving outside later when the chance of frost is gone. Uh, he writes, I've done this uh, before in the past, but um, last spring, with a few plants, I moved them uh, to from the 18 hours inside to outside, where the day was about 14 hours, and they all went into flower, then came out, got stressed, picked up every pest and disease coming by, and never made much bud. Any ideas on how to prevent this? Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, before you're putting your plants out, as, after they've rooted, but before you're putting them outside into larger containers... You want to acclimate them to whatever the lighting situation is that's outside. So slowly bring them down from 18 hours to maybe whatever it might be, 15 or or 14 hours. And then you put them outside and and hopefully they won't be shocked into flowering and then have to go through that whole process of re-vegging and coming back. So, yeah, I would say you want to acclimate them as much as you can. to the outdoor light cycle and also to the fact that they're going to be in bright sunshine. So give them a few hours of sunshine per day um, before you just put them out for a full day in the sun. So that's what I would say. All right. Makes sense to me. Thank you, Blue Ridge Grow. Let's move on to Old Leaf. Uh, He writes, Mike and Danny, thank you so much for answering my question last week. I'm happy to update that my very first seedlings in my baby grow box are popping roots uh, through the rock wool, so they're going to veg soon. His question this week, tap water versus RO water. Is there a debate here or will RO water that I uh, have total control over just produce better, healthier, bigger yields? Yeah. I mean, I'd go with RO pretty much over almost any other water. And what is RO? Uh, Reverse osmosis water goes through a reverse osmosis machine. So basically you're taking regular tap water and you're rinsing it clean of any kind of uh, anything. So literally anything beneficial or harmful in that water is taken out and you, you're starting with a really low PPM level and water with no, um, you know very low levels of any kind of anything. So you know even the micronutrients and things that could have been beneficial are pulled out. So you want to then with RO water 
it's an it's an empty palette, and you paint the picture with whatever nutrients and additives you add uh, to that water. And so I would recommend that for pretty much almost any grower, unless your water is so good that you don't need to do that, which is pretty rare these days with the deregulation and blah blah blah. So yeah, RO water is better if you can afford the RO machine. Uh, if not, let your at least at the very least let your tap water sit out for at least 24 hours just to dissipate some of the chlorine and other things that might be in there. Sounds good to me. All right. Unfortunately, uh, we are short on time, so we're going to have to call it that. But if you have a question that you would like Dan to answer on the show, uh, freeweed at hightimes.com is the email. You could also reach us on Twitter at Danny Denko, at MyQs underscore, hashtag freeweed. What do you say? We take a little break, come back, put a bow on it. Let's do it. All right, so this is the Raw wrap-up. Wrap it up with Raw. We are currently wrapping it up with Raw. I really like that interview, man. That was fun. It was interesting, yeah. yeah. Different for us, and hopefully people learned something or enjoyed that. It wasn't grow-heavy, but it was very, uh, you know, just an interesting topic and subject matter with a person, you know, of interest in history, as far as I'm concerned. He's part of the counterculture, and yeah. Pot is part of the counterculture. And, uh, you know, it was it was interesting to get his take on, on those events. And it's interesting also to share uh, that that past with our newer listeners yeah. who, who maybe weren't alive for that. I wasn't alive for it either, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Absolutely. So, yeah, I want to thank uh, Mr. Ayers. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much it. Just follow us and spread the word about free weed and really appreciate all the tweets and Facebook postings and all of that. And keep up the great work uh keep on growing and thank you for listening to episode number 57 yes we will be back next week with many many questions from our listeners and more great grow info indeed indeed